Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 25. Uh, I actually like go back. I'm going to start in Matthew 24 because we we left off in verse 45 um, last week. So I'm going to pick up with that parable. Um, I think the chapter break should have been there because Matthew 24 then is the Olivet Discourse teaching part. And then that last paragraph in 25 is a series of parables that make the same points. Uh, So we'll be talking about the end of days again when Jesus comes back, second coming. Uh, But we're going to start in Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the fifth teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew, Olivet Discourse. Um, It's the second coming of Jesus, what to look for, what to expect. I say that context because like, we have to understand this is regarding a particular question the disciples asked about. They said, uh, chapter 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So verses 3 through 14 of 24 give signs of the end of the age. 15 through 31 says signs of the second coming. And then 32 and 35 are the fig tree parable or image. And then 36 to 44, Jesus is saying, peri day, that said, you need to be ready um, you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And this, this teaching that we get at the end of 24 is that same idea. Life's going to be going on as normal. You're not going to expect when I show up. So for you as my disciples, those that are following Jesus, just be about your master's business. Take care of what I've put you in charge of. Or in what we say here, verse 45, um, food in due season. So then the question is, well, what's food in due season and what does that mean? So we're going to see three parables that illustrate what Jesus is talking about, where he continues to reemphasize this idea of being ready. But then I got questions. What does it mean to be ready? What does it look like if I'm ready? How do I know if I'm right in doing it? And this is what some people would call the assurance of salvation. Because if I'm not ready and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that doesn't sound like salvation to me. That sounds bad. But if I am ready and then I'm good, so then is my salvation based on my works and how ready I am or is my salvation based on grace and so you have a lot of these questions that come up which is why we again need to know the context of the Olivet Discourse the question is how do we know when you're coming back and Jesus essentially says well there's all these signs that are before I come back these things will happen but you just need to be ready you don't need to know when I'm coming back because when I come back it's going to be quick One person will be in the field working and they'll disappear and the other person will keep working. 
Like it's going to be as you go about your day-to-day -day life. So in verse 45 of chapter 24, they made ruler over the household. The phrase there is actually kathisteme epeotos therapia, or household. The word there is therapia, which is where we get the word therapy, service or care for somebody. So Jesus made his disciples over or appointed or ordained. The word ruler there isn't like a, a king ruler with a scepter in his hand. It's someone who's been appointed to the caring service of his, of his people, right? So I, I made you, appointed you onto this caring service. So it's not actually like an authority kind of sentence, but the point is the disciples should be feeding somebody. Okay, does that mean we all become restaurateurs? What is the thing there? The word food in the Greek is sustenance. It can mean a lot of different things. It's a big word. Uh, and the same way we use food, right? I can have food for thought. I can have food for my soul. I can have chicken soup for my soul, right? We think of that word in, in a broad word too, but the word trophy, they means meat or nourishment. To minister to somebody therapeutically is to feed them or give them nourishment. So what is the spiritual meat? We know from Hebrews 5.12, it's the word of God. And that this is how we feed people. This is what we do with it. You've been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need somebody to teach you, again, the basic things about God's word, like your babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. This doesn't mean the babies aren't saved. It means that you can be saved and not be about your father's business. That's taking a lot for granted. And you're probably, and one thought is maybe the weeping and gnashing of teeth is all the opportunities you missed because you weren't looking for them. You're going through your life and you're just doing your thing all the time and you're not really doing it. So it's kind of an admonishment in Hebrews. Um, and it doesn't mean we, this idea of feeding each other is always the teaching of the word. The person teaching the Bible isn't always the person doing it. When somebody's in a sour mood and we give them something from the scriptures to help lift them up, that is feeding them God's word. And in fact, we feed people's God's word all the time. And I don't want you to take my word for that. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. We get nourished by God. We nourish other people the same way. We come to church on Sunday. We hear God's word. We go out of church the rest of the week, and we share God's word. Here's what I heard on Sunday. This is what I learned. You know Jesus is coming back, and this is going to be made right. I mean, we can talk in every conversation. You can nourish people with what God says from his word because you're learning it every week. You get a weekly dose of it. And that's that idea of being a good servant. Verse 46, you're about God's work when he returns. So it's not about that the works save us. It's that if we are God's servants, then we do his work. And I, I hope that makes sense. Like that really trips people up on the works versus grace thing. We're saved by grace. And the response to that is to give other people comfort because God's comforted us. And, and it turns out that that works pretty well. Verse 47, this is a great reward for the faithful. They get to be ruler over all his goods. They get to be part of what God has going on. We get to be part of God's inheritance. And that's the reward. So there is this idea that faithful servants will get rewarded differently than unfaithful servants, but they're both servants. They're both going to heaven. And that's not an excuse to do nothing. Well, I'm okay to take nothing from God and then do nothing for God. If that's the case, James wrote a whole letter, 
or we call the book of James, like read that. He, he comes at that harshly, like, and, and against that thought of, well, I'm saved by grace, so I don't need to do anything. And the idea is, heavens no, don't think that way. Because if you're thinking that way, maybe you're not really a servant of God. Maybe you've, maybe you've deceived yourself. Um, so if we do appreciate that God saved us because we recognize our sin and we know that being saved from that's a mighty gift, then we turn that around and we offer that grace to other people and that comfort, that encouragement. Verse 45, notice that faith here isn't what the person believes. We often use the word faith in, in America, like faith is, I have faith in something, like I believe it, and that's true. But in this particular passage, the faithful person is what they do. They are faithful people. So it's not that they believe there's a God, it's that they're, they believe there's a God who wants them doing things, and then they act accordingly, consistently. So the faithful servant is one actually feeding people. And, and I would also say this too, like to be faithful in that, again, it's not just teaching the word like we're doing on a Sunday morning. It's, it's communicating that word out to people throughout your week, but it's also supporting the teaching of the word. So when we do all the things it takes to get ready for a Sunday morning, all of those activities support the teaching of the word. So in that, so in, in that sense, Christians are supporting that in, in all of the, what they do. And then we know that Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is where it all comes from. To be faithful people, we hear the word of God and then we act faithfully because of what we hear. Christ's servants are called to be faithful, not just to believe things. So this is something I heard during the week. We're awfully comfortable with calling Jesus our Savior. Are we also comfortable with calling him our Lord? And I do think that one of the things in this passage or that particular teaching is those might be different things. People love being saved, but that idea of serving God means taking up your time, changing your direction a little bit, altering things. Um, verse 48, we get into this philosophy that gets called evil in the same sentence. This is an evil philosophy. My master's delaying, so I don't need to worry about it today. I got plenty of time. And that idea, if that's evil, then the opposite of it might be good. And the opposite of that would be the Lord could be coming back right now. The Lord could come back in an hour. It could come back in 10 minutes. What's the Lord going to catch me doing? And that's what we call the principle of eminent return. So Christians talk like Jesus is coming back tomorrow because we train ourselves to think that way because it, it spurs us to action right now. I might not have tomorrow to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. I have right now in this moment. So there's that idea of the principle of eminent return and the evil of thinking the opposite. Well, Jesus isn't going to come back for a few years. It's not, not right here. There's, there's plenty of time to do things. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine wherein there is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That Jesus is coming back later leads to being carnal in this passage and unloving. Both of those things. Mean to the people around you and also carnal in what you're doing and how you're spending your time. Verse 51 uses the phrase, to cut him in two. Um, that's harsh if you think of it literally. Um, they haven't done their work. They've abused it. And they get what they deserve. They get separated out from the holy. So there's... Really, when you look at this, this thought, this idea that it's not urgent, we should be wary of that. So largely, the non-urgent Christian might be a nice enough person, but they've got their eyes on the world. And they're not about their father's business. Verse 46, 
the work the master gave them was to take care of the household. So that's implicit of the church, I think. To do the work that they're supposed to be doing, verse 46. Um, to, be, to be so doing something, poiho in the Greek, is to make something ready or produce something. What are you building for the kingdom of God? Are you building relationships with people? Building connections? Uh, or literally helping to like make things or do things that support the people that do the ministry? So my point being, to work to serve the feeding or the giving out of food in due season is to teach, but it's also to help, to actually literally feed people, to worship, to pray, or if we could make up a word, it's fruiting. It's to do the fruiting things of the Holy Spirit, um, or to simply be there to support people and, and, and hang out. Sometimes it's nice to just have numbers at an event. So we appoint him as portion. Jesus speaks of judgment, separation. And in all of these parables that we're going to get to, we get the images of wise people and foolish people. It's a lot like the book of Proverbs, right? There's only two kinds of people in the world, those that serve God and those that don't. Those that serve God matter. Those that don't are going to find eternal damnation. So you can put a sign in your front yard that says, godly lives matter, right? And, and, and that's the biblical perspective. There really only are two kinds of people in that regard. So we get ready. We give food. We know what the Word of God says. You can't share it if you don't know it. Um, and we give it out to people as much as we can. So then we get the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, which is essentially the same idea. And we're into chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took the oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight the cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, give me some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, <laughs> lest there should not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Take care of your own oil. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Therefore, watch. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Specifically, Jesus is talking to his disciples about this second coming thing being um, a return for the church is maybe a different idea than the second coming for the world. That there are kind of a couple different versions of that. Because in this sense, not knowing when it's happening versus last chapter when he gives all these signs of when it's happening, Jesus is talking to his disciples, I'm going to come and get you and you're not going to know it's coming. So be ready. And that's the only thing you really need to think about and worry about is that readiness. So in Jewish weddings, I love this image, this parable you'd have the engagement where the parents agreed on the kids. Like old Jewish stuff, they could agree really early on. And then you had the betrothal where they made the vows, where the, the young people made those promises to each other. And then there would be this period of waiting, waiting a long time before the groom had prepared a place for the bride. And the groom's job was you got to go build a house. You, maybe sometimes that house was an add-on to their father's house. But they had to go build a house, and the father had to approve it. Like, if you build a crappy house, the father would say, fix that, redo this, do that. And the son's job was to say, okay, and learn how to be obedient to the father. But at some point, the father would come out and look at the house and say, that house is worthy for your bride. Go get her. And then he would tell his groomsmen, 
they would get all excited and dressed up. They'd wait for night to come. And then they would start making noises all around the bride's place, ringing bells. Like, they're not trying to be sneaky, right? They're trying to let the brides know it's tonight. Tonight's the night. But there would be all these bells that would ring and sounds that would happen. So the bride, the, uh, the bride and her bridesmaids would get her all dressed up, get her, you know, that whole process it takes um, for this to happen. And then the grooms would come in and snatch her away, just like that. And then the bride would be hauled out. And the bride, bride's maids would have these lamps and they would stand on the street and they'd be all kind of in their white dresses and it would just be beautiful, right? So imagine a starry night and the streets are lined with these girls with candles. So everything's lit by candlelight. And these lamps aren't the little teeny ones. These would be the big ones you'd kind of hold out like a torch. And then the groomsmen would be carrying the bride on their shoulders off to go to the, to the house of the father, right? The house that's been prepared. So this image Jesus uses, it's almost like he conditioned the whole Jewish culture to have this kind of tradition that was in place that he's talking about. John 14, 3, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am you may also be. And when you put that with this image of the Jewish wedding, like think about what Jesus is saying there. We've made our, we've been betrothed. I mean, the betrothal happened back with the covenant with Abraham. Happened a long time ago with the patriarchs, right? The betrothal is then Jesus coming himself and interacting with humanity on his own and saying, I'm going to come back and get you. We've, we're betrothed. There's a promise that I've given you as a bride and I'm going to come back and get you, but I have to go prepare a place for you to be. So these bridesmaids, there, there are 10 of them. That was the common number for weddings. Like today we have three or four groomsmen and three or four bridesmaids. With these weddings, their common number back in the first century was about 10. There'd be 10 sisters, cousins, whoever you could round up. Um, some of your Bibles might say virgins. They weren't necessarily virgins. Uh, they, were, they were innocent, unmarried women who should darn well be virgins if they were doing everything according to God's law. Um, but they would have these vessels um, and they should be ready. The idea was, if you need to go get oil for your lamp, get it before the Lord comes. Don't wait until the Lord comes and then go, oh, where's my oil? And the oil, uh, you know, is always an image of the Spirit or the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's why they used oil to anoint people. It was a symbolic image of the God's Spirit being on people. So you may be a bridesmaid or have that title. You may be saved. But if the Holy Spirit isn't just part of your life and how you operate, if you're not blessed by hearing the word, if the God's worship doesn't stir something in you every now and then, like something's not there. And you need to be dealing with that relationship with the Lord before you do other things. In verse 5, it says they slumbered and they slept. And I'm thinking, why would you need two different words there? To slumber is to like nod off or like get, you know, a few winks in between jobs. You know, just to, I say, I want to rest my eyes, and the kids love that phrase. Um, to sleep is that deep REM sleep. So when they use those two words in the Greek, it's light and heavy sleeping. In other words, it's been a long wait. And Jesus has, it's been a long wait. So they are to be preaching the word in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. As we interact with each other, we're trying to coach each other, help each other, teach each other. And then this cry gets heard. And this is usually an amazing thing. Don't read that like a negative, right? The shout would go out from all the groomsmen. Sometimes they'd even have little trumpets they would blow. But they, the idea was the whole town knew 
that a girl was getting snatched for a wedding tonight. And that out of nowhere, there'd be this kind of this holiday rejoicing feast that was about to happen. Um, at this point in the wedding, everybody knew about it. The betrothal had happened. It was just that time or that night. So people would hear the noises of the groomsmen, and that gives them time to wake up, wash your face, get your clothes on. If you look at Jesus' other metaphor, you put on the garments that have been sent to you, the garments for the wedding, and you put those on, and then you get ready to go to an awesome feast. So it's beautiful. It's romantic. There's a whole video on this. I think Zola Levitt put it out where they televise this wedding feast night, and I'm sure the Chosen will do a nice job with it too. But it's kind of an exciting thing when the Lord returns. We should be stirred, like, oh, this is it. I'm excited. It shouldn't cause dread at all. So Jesus already called himself a bridegroom back in Matthew, this same book, Matthew 9.15. Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's already used this image before. Matthew 22, he told the story about the wedding. Everybody who hears the invite should get their garments on and go to the wedding. The Old Testament always refers to God as the bridegroom of Israel, the bride. So when Jesus calls himself a bridegroom, he's doing that same thing where he's taking kind of a secondary way to call himself God. So when he says, I'm the bridegroom, like that would really offend the rabbis, and it did. Um, and it just fits into this image, like God's the bridegroom and Jesus is the incarnate version of God. Isaiah 62, 5, as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over thee. The tradition of calling God the bridegroom goes way back into Jewish culture and in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament. So God comes like a bridegroom, snatches up his people, brings them back to his throne, Thank God the bride has all these friends and town folk to come with her. Like, I'm really happy that the Gentiles get to come back because in the Old Testament, the bride was always Israel. And Jesus talking about the bride now is maybe expanding that to the church, or at the very least, we as Gentiles get to go with Israel as they're brought back to their Lord. So they trim their lamps, which is this idea of putting things in order. They get their preparations. You got the oil of the Holy Spirit. Um, I mentioned that too. I'll, I just want to go back to 1 Samuel 16. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Just again, don't just good Bible study. That's where we get the idea that the anointing of the oil has something to do with the Holy Spirit. is because the oil or the anointing goes on and God's spirit goes with it. And God does that, I think, to build these images that Jesus then uses when he's here on the planet. Um, so an oil gets lit. The oil often comes with a fire, which is that life that kind of comes from the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, nobody's ready for the return of the groom. If nobody on the planet is living in the Holy Spirit, there aren't wise bridemaids ready to go. And I think that's one of the things to take from this. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his, Romans 8, 9. If you're not living in the Holy Spirit, there's something there to ask about or to inquire about. Frankly, if that terrifies you, you probably have the Holy Spirit helping to terrify you. If that's just obscure to you and it doesn't make sense, then that's where you should be wary. It's the people that are concerned with this that probably don't need to be concerned. It's the people that aren't concerned with it that probably should be concerned. Right? Do I have the Holy Spirit in my life? And if you're asking that question, that's likely inspired by God helping you to ask that question. 
with the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he takes away the desires of the world and he adds in you the desires of the heavenly things or the kingdom. Like we were talking about beforehand, suddenly sports aren't as exciting anymore, which is a bummer, but then church becomes way more exciting. Sharing the word with people gets way more exciting. Watching somebody say a prayer of salvation and joining the kingdom becomes like the utmost touchdown in the spiritual world. Like it's amazing. Score, basket, whatever you want to call it. The ladies knew the promise of the groom, but they never filled their lamps. Think of that. They knew the groom had promised to come back, but they never bothered to tend to that spiritual life, that oil that needed to be in their lamps that should be lit, right? It's foolish to think that you always got time to do that. Well, I'll just go do that on the weekend, or I'll just do that next week. It's foolish to think that way. What if there is no next week? The evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying from the last narrative. That's a passive decision, but it's still a decision. It's a sin of omission. Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. When the time comes, the unprepared girls are asking the prepared girls to stand in for them or share a little bit. The problem with this isn't just that the wise girls are greedy. It's that they want to honor the bridegroom and the bride. And because the girls are ready to do that, the holding up of those torches, those lamps, that could be a while from when the guys start ringing their bells to when the snatch actually happens. It might be an hour or so where they're standing out in the streets as the town folks come out because you want a parade to have a crowd. So they don't want the oil to run out. How embarrassing would that be if it's just not there till the end? And as believers, we should think the same way. We don't want our spirit to run out before the end. So we keep feeding ourselves. I got convicted by this question as I was studying this. If people know me for more than 10 minutes, do they see a light or don't they? Like any connection with a human being, anywhere. If it's more than like a three-second interaction, do people know that I love the Lord? Do they see that light or don't they? And how, what are ways in which I can do that? Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready, Revelations 19.7. And, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. One of the ways we show people what we do, according to Revelation, is that we do the things that are good that we see in front of us. Well, that would be a good thing to do. I see a guy who needs this. I'm going to just help with that. And then you get this, again, if the Holy Spirit's in you, this bothers you. Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Like if you're living a life that looks just like the world and you don't have devotional time where you're hearing from God, prayer time where you're talking to God, there's no conversation, why would you think then he knows you at the other end of that? It's a terrifying thought, I think, for people with the Holy Spirit. I want to get to know my Lord better and better and better. When he did the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 7, he used the same language. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. This is a tough thing to get. Works-based salvation is a lie, and it leads people to frustration. Grace alone is our salvation, but then to think there's nothing to do after that, there's no will of God that we need to carry out, is a really dangerous precipice to stand on also. And the truth lies somewhere in between. We are saved entirely by grace, and if we love the Lord, there's things we can do to help the Lord's will be done. What's the Lord's will? The Lord's will is to share the gospel with the entire planet. 
which means the next person you run into should know something about God that from you. Does that mean we're just always talking about Jesus with people? Mm, maybe it does. Like maybe that is something that, and what happens is people who don't want to hear about Jesus eventually tell you. They just get sick of hearing it. But it doesn't mean that that's not our job or the will of the Father is to bring God's word to people as best we can. So Jesus, uh, the bridegroom himself, uh, is, gives these instructions. And then at the end, this idea of I don't recognize you, is in the Greek, there's a lack of relationship. I don't know you means to, I don't have a connection with you. So we should be always ready for the Lord. And part of that readiness is to be in the word, be with other believers, support the work of God, help the will of God move forward and constantly be seeking what that will is. Faith is the bottom line. It leads us to readiness, and faith leads us to work. So we watch, therefore. That's the conclusion Jesus gives. Be on the watch. The stakes are really too high to trust that somebody else's holiness is going to get us into heaven. You know, why hang out with so-and-so? He's a pretty good guy, or she's a pretty good person. That, that's not there. To get ready means to give food. We need to know and teach God's word. That helps us to be ready. To get ready means to get oil, which is to be watchful of the Holy Spirit, like see where the Spirit's moving and be ready to be part of that. And then we get another parable, which gives us another little aspect of what it means to be ready. Parable of the talents. Um, what are the faithful about while we wait? So while we're waiting for God, what should we be doing? Verse 14. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And, the one he, and to one he gave five talents, and to another he gave one, uh, to each according to his ability. Oh, one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately went in on a journey. Then he, he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained all, two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Okay, that's not good. That's the setup for the parable. This parable is a little different. It's talking about all servants, all of the servants of God. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus and says, I'm a Christian. So, and he's talking about, he's, he's all of these people are given some degree of talent. And, and talent here is money. It's not like our skill or being able to tap dance or something. Um, some people multiply those resources God's given and some people don't. But they're given different amounts. I think that's interesting. Uh, last time we saw workers in the field, they all got the same pay, no matter how many hours they worked. It wasn't about the works. In this one, they actually get different resources from their king. They're all servants of the king. They're all, they all have talents given from the king. But they do different things with what they're given. And I think that's an important distinction. He delivered goods to them. This is common in the ancient world. If a master of a home or an owner of land had to go on a trip or go on vacation, he had a complete like a, a farm that had workers on it. They all knew what to do. So a good master that was going to help out in other ways in the society or go into politics or something like that, they had people at home that could manage things. So you needed people you trusted, people that wouldn't steal from you, people that wouldn't uh, waste it. We saw that Joseph, remember, was put in charge of Potiphar's household even when Potiphar was home. So the idea is you train these people in before you leave. Like Jesus came and spent three years training his disciples. I've taught you what to do. I've shown you how to do it. I've modeled how to pray. I've modeled how to help people, how to heal people. 
I've modeled how to show grace and love and how to forgive. Now I want you to do those things that I've modeled because that's my work. That's my will. So those talents, a weight of money, I think this is kind of cool. One talent was typically in silver. Uh, it was uh, the same as 3,000 or 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So they didn't really, it's different than inflation. If you worked a day, you got a denarii. That was kind of the Roman economy. So 6,000 days of wages to be a talent would be 16 years of your work. That's what it was worth. So let's say you make 50,000 a year. That's $800,000. That's one talent. So even one got five, one got two, one got one. Even the person that only got one talent, that's like getting handed $800,000 of God's money. What are you going to do with the, that $800,000? So this is a, a huge amount of money. It's $1.6 million for two talents and $4 million for five talents by today's numbers. Not any of these servants are given anything but a total abundance of resources. So it's not their work that got that. And they, they didn't work super hard and earn a talent of money. They're handed it. In the same way, we're not, we haven't earned anything we get from God, yet God gives us all um, this unstoppable Holy Spirit and um, all-powerful force he puts in the hands of us humans, right? Just the, the act of prayer, if you go back to the fig tree parable when Jesus is talking about how to pray, like you need to ask for things. He's given us all this resource, so what are you going to do with it? His goods then are um, that. Talents were also kind of a weight amount. Um, so it's not just money or cash, but resources. His goods is, is what he's delivered his goods to them. So in the ancient world, goods would be like the, the sheep and the, the herds of camels. You know, so it's like getting $1.6 million worth of camels or $1.6 million worth of purple dye. He gave them his goods. So in that kind of an economy, it's not digital money getting exchanged. It would be sheep that needed to be tended to so you could pull the wool off them so you could sell the wool. So he entrusts them with these goods, which have the ability to produce more wealth. In the same way, our spiritual gifts, and yes, there is a pun there, our spiritual talents, have, are, so, are more abundant than we were able to create on our own, and they have this kind of ability to produce spiritual benefit. So what are we going to do with that? The master leaves. He gives us these gifts, this duty. The will is to use those sheep to make more wool. Use those camels to trade more goods. Use that purple dye to exchange it and buy other things. You know, Use the, the vineyards to produce wine so that you can continue to grow the farm while he's gone. We're supposed to grow the kingdom. So there's this idea. So there's money and... Eh. But we also have things like time. Like if you're alive and you woke up this morning, you have a day. That's a resource that God's given you. He didn't take you home yet. You have breath in your lungs. You have any kind of influence, authority. You have people you come in contact with. We have abilities that we have. But the spiritual gift of even just loving other people is a gift God's given us. And we're supposed to grow those gifts. We're supposed to do something with the gifts we have. So he went and traded the first person. Goes out with the intention of work. He just... The first servant with the five talents, probably the reason he was given five talents is that he has a humble heart to just keep about the business of his master. So he's trading those goods, he builds wealth, and he actually turns the four million into eight million. He's ready to talk to his master because he's been doing the work. The second one, notice, didn't trade. The second one simply um, likewise when he received two, gained two more, but it doesn't say how he gained two more. 
So maybe he's doing it in other kinds of ways, and I just like that there's a slight difference there. But he doubles his money, which is really the same amount of produce as the first person. God doesn't care about how much or how big. Anyone that cares about how big is not speaking on behalf of God. It doesn't matter. They're not ready. They're not ready because they haven't done anything with what God has given them. So this is that, that idea of the person then digging in the ground. It doesn't say why he dug in the ground. Maybe it was to save the money and preserve it. People read that into this parable. Maybe he was worried he would lose it because he didn't trust his own, he had shame or didn't think he had what it took to do God's work. Maybe he was fearful. That's the reason he gives later. Well, I was scared of what he would say. Think about people where they don't do things and they're like, well, I'm just, I'm too scared that I'm going to mess it up. You're burying it in the ground. Right? So God took all the gifts and focused on the earthly, they focused on the earthly use. I think it's no accident Jesus says they buried it in the ground, the thing of the earth, instead of dealing with the things of heaven. Also, when you bury it in the ground, you're getting your hands dirty. Like that's a messy thing to do with the money. Now the money's all soiled, or the goods are all soiled. Imagine pulling a vial of olive oil out of the ground after it's been buried. Like who wants that? Right? How much dirt snuck into that oil? Verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he received five talents. So, so he who received five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, you've delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more besides them. So he's proud of what he's done. He's happy with the fruit that he's bore with that money. And I don't think this is an unhealthy pride. There's just an excitement here. Lord, you gave me something, and I took it, and I did this. Now I'm giving it all back to you. Right? That's a healthy relationship between a servant and their master. I work for you. You pay me a salary. I'm giving you everything I can for that salary. And I hope you come out at the better end of that bargain. That's a good employee attitude. You pay me this much, but I'm going to give you as much and more if I'm capable of doing that. Then verse 21, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Also, he had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you've delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. It's the exact same response as the five-talent person. In the church, we should not compare ourselves to one another. We do what we can with what God's given us, and we're proud of what we've done. And the Lord said to him the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you a ruler over many things. They get the same reward, right? Word for word. The same reward. God knows how much he's given people. God sees you working with what he's given you, and he, he smiles on that. Again, if the Holy Spirit's in you at all, when you hear a sentence like, well done, good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things, I'll make you a ruler over many, who cares what the rulership is? That's just a bonus. Well done, good and faithful servant. If I can get to heaven and God just says that and overlooks all my sin and everything else, like something stirs in me when I hear that. Like the Lord God Almighty looking at me and saying, Sean, well done, good and faithful servant. You did good. And that's all I really need to hear. It doesn't need to be perfect because I know I'm not. I'm not saying I'm not a sinner because you all know I am. But you get to that point where that's the goal. That's what we're looking for. Verse 21, verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what, what we're looking for. So, in verse 19, don't miss that Jesus just slips this in. It's like he's warning his disciples that it's going to be a while. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
So in both parables, we get this image that, that a length of time that you're going to wait for Jesus, the master, to come back is going to be a little longer than you thought. Don't get unwatchful when that happens. Like, know that it's going to be a little bit longer. So I just like that Jesus slides that in there. The delay is not accounted for. We are not told in any of these accounts why there's a delay in Jesus' return. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? I don't know. Because that's the biblical answer. We're not told. We don't know. I don't know why he's delayed, why he's not coming back you know, sooner. All I know is my job is to take care of what he's given me within the kingdom of God, and I'm going to try to multiply the joy I have in my heart with other people. Good and faithful. They're two different things. To be a good servant. Remember Jesus said there's no, not one good except for the Father. But the behaviors that we do can be good. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, it, it, that idea that we can do the right thing is an amazing feeling. And to do that with some confidence is even better. Faithful, again, here is not what the person believes. It's what they've done. Faithfulness is about doing the things God's told us to do every day. I think even just as a baby believer, I had to get good about my devotional time, being faithful in my devotional time. If God says to be in the Word, I should be in the Word. And I, and I still struggle with some of those things. Being faithful about showing up to being in a body of believer and just being there week in, week out, at some point, God's going to test you or the enemy's going to get you with, well, what's this other thing that should take priority over meeting with the other believers? And our answer should be, well, as much as possible, as much as the Lord's willing, nothing. Like, this is my priority. Everything else needs to move for that, but to be faithful in attendance is another way to be faithful. To be faithful in service. If you've taken on a duty or a job, to, be, to make it where people can rely on you. Good and faithful servants. Two different, two different ideas. I think it's better to be faithful with the two, three people you know in your own family than it is to be faithful with a thousand people in a super church. Honestly, think about it. God wants you to be faithful with the people he's put in your life, first and foremost. That's tough to do when those people don't want you around. <laughs> but to just be there and have the door open and continue to keep your heart humble and, and forgiving. Um, notice that both of these people are judged individually. The first two servants aren't, they've done the right thing and they both get the identical praise. But it's not just a story format that they get a different sentence from their master. Even though it's the same sentence, they get judged individually. Each person's judged according to what God has put in their life. There's some people that think, oh, I've had a horrible past. I've, I had all this stuff. God knows that. God knows your past. He knows what you've put up with. The temptation is to be jealous of people that weren't tested in those ways. Right? Well, those people have had it really easy and whatnot. But to just say, you know what? I, don't, I didn't start with a lot. I don't have a lot, but I'm going to give what I got. And I think that's the attitude God wants us to have. So what's God have you doing now? Are you invested in people? Are there people that are discipling you? Are you discipling other people? How are you at? Where are you at with your family? Where are you at with your coworkers? Do they know that you love the Lord? Have you put the Lord out in front? Have you done it with joy? Whatever it is God's put in front of us to do, I like just fill in the blank sentence. I'm going to be the most godly blank that I can be. If God's made me a window washer, then I'm going to be the most godly window washer I can be because that's what God's allotted to me. That's my work, and I'm going to do it the best I can. I'm going to do it with some pride. I'm going to be ready to go, and I'm going to do it with an idea of like leaning forward into learning how to do it better all the time. That's a decision that we make where we lean forward in life instead of leaning backward in life. 
I'm going to deliver food, I'm going to do it with the most godly way I can. If I'm going to pick up coffee, I'm going to do that in the most godly way I can. If I'm going to care for a household, I'm going to do it the most godly way that I know how to do it. If I'm going to look at houses, take care of a coffee shop, how can I do that the most godly way I can do it? That's to be faithful in what we've been given. So the faithful people get a few rewards. They get one praise from their master. They get more blessing or service. So if you do a good job with what you've been given, God will give you more. Well, that just means more work. So is work a bad thing for you or is that actually a reward? Oh, awesome. I get to do more. And I think in the things of the kingdom, it works different than in the world. In the world, to get more duty and responsibility is not always a good thing. But in the kingdom of heaven, if you're doing what the Lord desires because your heart follows the Lord's heart, that's an enduring gift. Oh, I get to do more? Praise the Lord. There's a joy. Number three, that's the third reward that's here, is that enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm a joyful God and you're a joyful person. That's a reward. Anybody that struggled, struggled with depression, anger, frustration, anxiety, to be able to enter into a joyful disposition, what a gift. Even if it's for a few moments on a Sunday morning, then we build that into a few hours on a Sunday, and suddenly we want our whole week to be filled with that joy of the Lord, that it's just overpouring. Because we've been fed, we can feed others. Wow. That's the opposite of verse 12. I don't know you. I don't know you is one answer, and I think that's horrible. That's the beginning of hell. And then the other answer is well done, and that's the beginning of heaven. Think of the contrast between the two. Verse 24, now we get to the, the last servant. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed, and I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Okay, bad decision. Um, I want to just contrast the, the good person's response but up in verse 20. Lord, you delivered me five talents. And the, 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 in verse 25, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. One person sees what God has given. The other person is just worried about who God is. And I think that's one of those deceptive things that servants can get into. If we worry too much about how hard God is or the nature of God more than we are about just doing good with what God's given us, we can get lost in doctrine instead of doing the service of God. And that can be kind of a danger. And it can be something where we don't know our God. So at the very beginning in verse 24, he lies. I knew you to be a hard man. God's not a, a man, and in this sense, the master is not just a hard man or a hard master, um, but God does judge. So you can look at judgment and just fixate on that. Well, God judges people. How can a good God send people to hell? Well, he can send people to hell because they, they don't want to be around him, <laughs> right? And to not be around God is hell. That absence of God can be a horrible and torturous thing. So even in the parable, we can see that this isn't the case. The unfaithful servant mistook who his God was. He mistook the nature of God. Not just doing the work, but like trying to do things according to what he thought. This is part of why people hide. I think they think of God as, um, uh, they think less of God than of what humans do. They're hiding, right? They're, they, they, so if he thinks God is a hard master, then he's thinking less of his master than he does about the people around him. 
So we get more worried about what humans think, and then we blame God instead of serving God. That's a dangerous pitfall for a servant. Remember, these three are all servants of the master. Part of why people blame God is they think less of themselves. If I'm not confident in how I use my abilities with other people, I can be digging holes and getting soiled instead of doing the work. So he doesn't think enough of himself to take that one talent, $800,000, and do something that'll produce. So he's probably doubting his ability. For instance, like if I had 800,000 actual dollars, I wouldn't know how to invest it in the stock market. So instead of investing in the stock market, I'd just sit on it. And, and, and he's saying, well, you could at least put it in a savings account. That's literally how the master responds to the guy, right? At least you could put it in a savings account and gain something, you know? At least, you know, go to church and stack the chairs. At least serve the people that are doing things. Um, you know, this idea of just, I'm going to do nothing because I'm worried about what God will think. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying not to do here. So if you don't think your work can make a contribution or that your efforts can have a dent in the kingdom, um, you're not understanding the grace and the glory of your God. It's not your talent to make that decision with. So he uses his own words to explain. In other words, his own words convict him here. He doesn't know who his master is. And because of his ignorance of who his master is, he doesn't know how to do the right thing. So sometimes you meet new believers or immature believers and they don't know what to do for the kingdom. That's cool. Spend some time getting to know your master. Be in the word, be in prayer, be, be actively hanging out with other believers. And if you don't know what to do with the kingdom, then help people who do. And be part of building that up and be a servant to the servants, which is kind of what Jesus explains. He says, you reap where you don't sow. That's a sideways to say that his master's all powerful and he owns everything. You reap even when you didn't sow it. Like, you're really powerful. That might be true, but it's not an excuse. And here's another pitfall with that kind of thinking. To think God's going to reap in the kingdom regardless of me, that's lazy. Because he told me to work. It doesn't matter what fruit I bear from it. I'm supposed to be putting that time in. So this is, again, this is convicting stuff. You gotta, we got to put on our thick skins for this. Um, he says, look, there you have what is yours. Only he just handed something back that is now soiled and nasty because it was buried in the ground. So he didn't really get back what is his. Now he got back something that's kind of tarnished, right? It's not, it's, it's, so it's less in a way. That's pretty bold, and there's no humility in this guy. He doesn't see anything wrong with his attitude. The purpose of the gift was to work and produce, and he's convinced himself not to work and produce, and then he's bold about handing the money back. Here, I give you all your money back. I've done good. I didn't lose your money. But the purpose of the, the entrusting of it in the first place was not to hide it. It was to bear fruit with it. That's why the master gave him those gifts. And spiritually, we can think of the same way. The reason God gives us breath in our lungs is to be a representative of him on this earth to people that are lost, to encourage people that are in his kingdom, to edify the body, to admonish and, and, and people that need to be redirected. The reason we have words to say is so that we can do that. Even God has blessed people that don't have all their physical capacity, but there's still people in our life that we can bless and be a blessing to. He didn't think, he didn't work, he didn't try, and he convinced himself that that was all okay. And I, this is a huge amount. Like as a believer with the Holy Spirit, when I meet somebody who's out there doing the work, I'm convicted by that. Because I think, ah, oh, am I, is there a reason I'm not, like, I have to, like, think through it. 
Am I not doing it because I didn't think about it? Am I not doing it because I don't want to work? Am I not doing it because I don't want to try or I don't think I can make an impact? Or am I not doing it because I've convinced myself that not doing it is okay? Balance that against I want to represent my king the best way I can. And suddenly you've got a lifetime journey for believers to find a balance with that. So here's how the master responds to the lazy. Well, he calls them wicked and lazy. So it's not just me saying it's a bad thing to do that. This is how the master responds. Verse 26. But his Lord answered him and said, You wicked and lazy servant, defined as all of that attitude is wicked and it's lazy. Right? You wicked and lazy servant. I, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited the money with bankers. At my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So there, the, in other words, whatever reason or excuse they came up with is a lame excuse because even the excuse convicts them of doing the wrong thing. If, so the, the master's not saying, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, I have gathered where I have not seen. He's saying, if that were true, then you should have reacted that way. But you didn't react that way. You just buried it in the ground. If you knew that God was harsh and judgmental, then you should be even better than if he's graceful and merciful. You should be acting in such a way that fits with what your words say. So the master catches him in the fact that his words are not true to his heart. His heart is wicked and lazy. His words don't show that, but the master knows the servant's heart. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him as 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is the same wording as Matthew 13, 12. This is why Jesus speaks in parables is so that we can kind of catch these, these concepts with different situations, but it's the same concept. And cast the unprofitable servants into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same wording as the last parable. The parallels there. Different situations, same idea. They're not ready. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not, they're not in the word from the first one. They're not, they don't have the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Holy Spirit ready, the second one. And in this one, they're, they're lazy and they're not doing what they're supposed to be up to. They don't never have time for God. So judgment is the wicked and lazy judgment. He does pass judgment. The servant is part of the team. You know, again, when Jesus is saying this to disciples, Judas is sitting there hearing this. There's people in the earshot of Jesus when he says these words that are believers in Jesus, but they're not going to do the right thing. Their actions betray their heart. So there's a danger of predestination. Everything's foreordained, and it doesn't matter how much I serve because God's it's all been planned out ahead of time. That's a dangerous attitude that Jesus, I think, is speaking directly against in these parables. Don't think like that. So hyper-Calvinist people, get over yourselves. It's not all foreordained. And even if it were, even if that's true, then you should be doing the things that you were foreordained to do ahead of time. Get up in the morning and do God's work. And then, and I'd say on the other side, there's a danger too. And this is one of the things I fell into. There's a danger to the theory of open theism. That nothing's foreordained. It's all unfolding. And then you can come to the conclusion that my little contribution may or may not matter. And it doesn't matter because it's all a battle and God's going to call out champions. He's not going to call me. So both of those can be a pitfall that you fall into. And they both have biblical elements. Like God is in, he does know what's going to happen. He is all powerful. 
And yet, there is a spiritual warfare going on. That's true, too. And there's elements of that spiritual warfare that we have not had to reveal to us how the, what the outcome is. So there, there's no fear of God when we get so caught up in those kinds of doctrines that we're, we're being wicked and we're being lazy because we're spending more time trying to figure out the nature of God than doing the work that he's clearly called us to do. And in that, there's no respect for the master. There's a gift that we have, but there's no fruit from it. So at least deposit the money is the attitude. At, at least, and it's not just, a, and again, it, it's a parable, so they're talking about these resources or goods that the servants were given. It's not just about the goods. It's about this idea of, of doing something. So we should know that it was outlawed to deposit money and, and do this. It's called usury, to collect interest on money. So there's a parable in Deuteronomy 23.20 that outlawed the practice of gathering interest from other Jews. Follow this for a second. So it's a really distasteful act to put your money in a bank and then collect interest off it. In Jewish culture, that was not it. So when he says, at least do this, at least do the thing that you think is less than, that thing that's beneath you, at least do that. And if you think that you don't, so, you know, I think of that and I just think, well, first of all, if I were to deposit money and have somebody collect interest from me, it would have to be a Gentile, right? So Jesus in this parable is saying at least go interact with Gentiles at some level because there weren't Jewish bankers that did this with other Jews. At least go out and tell, at least take the gifts and goods I've given you and share them with Gentiles and maybe they'll give you interest, you'll get some fruit from that. Right? Or another way to think about this is when we come into a church, we walk in going, what does this church need? What, are they, what can I do? How can I help? So, you know, I, I always joke because I think cleaning toilets is disgusting. I don't like doing it. But am I willing to do it if that's what I have to offer a church and they don't have anybody cleaning it and I see that they're dirty and there's a brush there and cleaning fluid on the shelf? Yeah, I can pick the stuff up. So there's times where I'll clean the toilets and say, Lord, I'm just going to clean the toilets for you. And I'm going to do this the best I can. The toilet's going to be spotless because I want to do it for the king. And so that idea of like at least do something, anything, even if you don't think it's going to bear fruit, there's not a lot of fruit in cleaning toilets. They just get dirty again. But at least do that before hiding your gifts and talents and not doing anything. Even if you believed your own words, you'd act that way, but you don't believe in your own words. So when people claim to believe in God and eternity, then live for God in eternity. Don't be a hypocrite, right? If, if you do believe there's a God and you are going to, and there is a heaven and there is a hell, then live that way. Or at, least, at, at some level, then that you're in danger of outer darkness. Outer darkness goes kind of with the wedding feast thing, that idea that there's going to be an amazing heaven waiting and there will be people that are just left out of it. That's worse than having the gift taken away. That's a final judgment. So there's a sin of omission here of not doing what we should be doing when we could be doing it. A lot of people say this is about being a good servant, but it's not about being a good or bad servant. The consequences here are pretty striking. Like they're no longer a servant at the end of this parable. They start that way, but they're not there at the end. So is this even about being a servant? So again, this is really like... Jesus has given his final teachings here. This is really convicting. This is the teaching that likely sent Judas off to go betray him. At some point, Judas is like, I just can't handle it anymore. 
I'm done with this kind of teaching. I got to get ready by giving food. I got to know the word and then share the word with people. That's to get ready. I got to get oil and have my be watchful for when God's going to return. I have the Holy Spirit ready to go and have enough of it so I don't run out. And then I got to get ready by getting to work and I got to actually serve. It's the same word for ministry. Ministry means service. I got to serve people and help people. That's not abstract or fluffy. It's not left to opinion. Jesus doesn't say this is something we can debate. It's a very direct and clear parable that's like, this is why this servant didn't get in because they found a bunch of excuses why they couldn't be doing it. So if we work for a wage, we may take wages from this world, but we live for our king. The wages are just there to help us serve the king. Think of this. Peter was a fisherman by trade, but that is not why we even know his name. He did not make it into history because of his great fishing skills. Paul made tents. That is not why we know Paul. We don't know Paul because he was a master tent maker, the world's greatest tent maker. We don't know Paul because of that. Lydia sold purple dye, but her renown in history is her place in the Bible, not in her dye-making abilities, right? I don't know the name of any other dye-maker, and that's because they're not famous people. There are tons of people in the Bible that are noted throughout history, and we know their names. The, the throne of David exists not because of David was a good king. It's because he had a spiritual relationship with God, and God elevated and made his name to have renown. There are lots of little tribal leaders in history we don't know the names of. But David... We know well, and we know his story and his history because of the kingdom work that he did, not because of his day-in, day-out administration of a kingdom. It's those moments that sometimes God prepares us for, but it's also that faithfulness, day-in and day-out doing the work. Because if this, if we're a believer and we're doing the work, that day-in, day-out grind and even persecution, that's the closest to hell we're ever going to get. But for the non-believer, that day-in, day-out grind, that's as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. God will cut them in two. He'll divide them. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God talks about hell. It's not a fun place. So you want a list of examples of what to do? Verses 35 and 36. We're going to get there. Um, verse 31, Jesus comes back to this point. He will come and judge. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They inherit the kingdom, the other group's going to inherit the wind. Exactly what they worked for. So the Son of Man comes. We don't know when, but when it does happen, it turns out that the nature of what's happening with Jesus is he's going to judge us. All those who are alive at the end of the tribulation period, all these nations, it doesn't say you, so it's like God's shifting the topic here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in Galatians. All the nations will be gathered before him. So before he's kind of talking about you, my disciples, now he's just going into this abstract all the nations thing again. Joel 3.2, I will gather all the nations and bring down them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations, they've divided up my land. Joel talks about this gathering of nations as a, a distinct event that Jesus is kind of talking about now. When those nations get gathered together, 
according to Joel, they're going to be judged by how they treated Israel. So Jesus explains this all the nations judgment. It's not an individual judgment. It's immediately after his return where he judges groups of people, nations. There's this collective civic judgment that's happening here, and they're going to get divided that way. So the Son of Man comes. Process appears to happen on earth, not in heaven, which is why we know this is a different judgment than the judgment seat, because he comes here. He's prepared this from the foundation of the world. This is kind of the reward for faithful living. Uh, Hebrews 1.10 says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. It's all been part of the plan. All of this judging of the nations, all these, the judgment of individuals, it's all part of the plan. God set it all up. And our Old Testament shows hundreds of allusions to Jesus and this plan A for the world, which is the only plan. I will open my mouth in parables. I'll utter the things secret from the foundation of the world. Everything Jesus is teaching in this chapter has been around forever. The purpose of him doing these things, these parables are supposed to reveal to us that this judgment is coming and it's happening. It should stir us. Hebrews 10, 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, like we have a conscience, (laughs) and their minds I will write them. We know the word. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless needs I will remember no more. I'm going to forgive them of their sins. That's the plan. It's plan A. Plan A is humans will never get it right. I'm going to have to forgive them, and this is how I'm going to do it. The Son of Man in verse 31, the King in verse 34, Father, Son of God, verse 35, all these names are becoming interchangeable as Jesus talks. It's all the same person in Jesus Christ. So this gets people confused because throughout the Old Testament, we use all these titles for Messiah. And Jesus in these verses is bringing all of them together. They're all the same. Don't you get it? I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the King. I'm the Eternal Father. I'm the Son of God. He uses all these terms and just stirs them all together and says, you get it now? It was all about Jesus from the beginning, from the foundation of the earth. So he's still answering the question from 24.3. What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus is either, he's either a megalomaniac, like he thinks he's God and that's weird and we should run from belief in Jesus because that's absolute arrogance, complete arrogance, or it's true. And he is God, incarnate, saying to humanity, I've always told you this is what's going to happen and now it's happening. There will be a judgment. It's been prepared for you in this verse from the foundation of the world. Like I've been there since the beginning. I'm going to be there at the end. What he's saying here is what's like, again, this is what sends Judas off, I think. This is going a step too far, Jesus. You're not God. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am. Or he is God. And this is absolutely true. And this is the belief of Christianity that he was much more than just a wise sage. In fact, there's no room for the wise sage argument. I've I've read that argument. You can't read these. You have to skip these verses to make the argument. Jesus was a wise sages don't say they're God. Like that's what nutcases say. Unless they're God. And then it's truth and it's exactly what they should say. And I have a feeling like when a nutcase talks, they get kind of wild in the eyes. I have a feeling like Jesus had none of that wild in the eyes look going on with this. He's speaking truth and it's clear and easy to easy to hear so the disciples then aren't nuts in following jesus they're convinced because of his power his disposition 
and his wisdom. Like they've walked with him for three years. They're not crazy when he says, I'm God, and they continue to follow him. That's not nuts. That's because they know it's true, and they see it. They, out on the sea, when he calmed the seas, and they said, you surely are the son of God, they knew it then. So all the worlds are going to come together. Jesus is, 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 is working through this explanation of what's going to happen. He's left parable mode here, and he's, again, talking about what's going to happen. There's going to be two groups, the sheeps and the goats. So let's look at each one, the blessed and the cursed, the saved and the damned. Two groups of people, that's it. Here's for the sheep, verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer them and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Okay, so there's the list of what we should be doing. And I don't think this is an exhaustive list, right? I think when Jesus is telling this, he's saying, for example, when it comes to like hearing my word and doing it, that means doing all of this stuff. Like do what in your heart you have, A, an opportunity to do, and B, a heart to do. Like this gives, like you love giving, putting together a food shelf or having spare clothes for people that can't afford to go out and buy new clothes. Like these are the things the church has done for 2,000 years. We see people that are starving and we try to get them food. And God says, you're doing that for them, you're doing it for me. It's the same thing. Don't confuse that those little things you don't think are significant, they're absolutely significant. I see your mercy. I like The idea of like feeding is really important to me. I love it when people feed me. And they think it's no big thing, but I think it's an absolute blessing. I try to tell my wife thank you for every meal she's cooked me through our whole marriage. I really appreciate it. What a blessing that is. That I didn't have to prepare the food, but I get to enjoy it. That's such a gift, right? That idea of when somebody's sick or in prison, you came to them. It doesn't necessarily say that they had to heal that person, even though Jesus has shown them and they have healed people. I don't have to be out doing miracles. I can just sit with somebody who's sick and not even have, God hasn't blessed healing through my prayers. I can still sit with them and keep them company. Going to prison, they kind of started locking people out of prisons. You can't really go to prisons anymore and just hang out and visit. They got all the security set up. And the idea I think Jesus is talking about is, you know what? You may think it's not much, but I do. And I see what you're doing. I see your mercy and I see your grace. I see that you're honest. When your boss overpaid you on the check, you, you gave him the money back. I see that. He, he knows that what's coming out of the heart because he knows your heart. A servant is in the word, filled with the Holy Spirit. They see ministry. They do ministry. And ministry includes feeding, hosting, clothing, healing, nursing, befriending people, being company to people, building people up, building others up. A lifetime of faithful service is to give our time for other people. I'm not the most important thing. And I, for me, verses 30, 35 through 40 what a blessing. Like, okay, that just, it's like taking the, like any stress that you built up with, man, I want to be a good and faithful servant, but I don't know how. Now I know how. But every one of these things takes my time. I, I have to say that my time's not my own. These actions have something to do with measuring faithfulness, but they're not salvation in themselves. Just because I go visit prisoners doesn't mean I'm going to heaven. Like Jesus talks about that side too, and I don't want to get lost because this is kind of a narrow road down the middle. 
right? And there's people that think, well, if I just do this list of things, I'll get into heaven. No, it's not a rule. God's seeing the heart and, and why you're doing those things. And if it's for your own personal gain, that might not be the right reason to, to host people because you're trying to get something out of it. Maybe it's just to bless people. We just want you to be blessed. So these actions have to do with measuring our faithfulness, but they have no measure or bearing on our salvation or whether or not we're forgiven. To forgive is the starting point. So it says, when did we see you? The good servants almost are taken off guard. I think there's going to be people when we get to heaven, nations when we get to heaven, because the gathering of nations here, there's going to be nations that are like, wow, you, you we're blessed because we helped with that food relief in that part of the world. And God's like, I saw what you did. That was pretty good. But I think individually there's going to be believers that are kind of surprised they're getting into heaven. Like, really? I didn't, I didn't know I did everything right. I had all these judgmental people telling me I was doing it wrong. And Jesus will say, yeah, the Pharisees are over there with the goats. But I saw your heart and what you did, and you were a good and a decent person, and you were faithful in doing what I asked to do. You followed my law to the best of your ability, and I'm going to forget all the other stuff. That's the plan since the foundation of the world. If this is judging the nations, and in Revelation 20 there's the great white heavenly throne where individuals get judged, um, then, then at, in Revelation 20 there's a book of life and this protection of Christ's intercession for individuals. But here it's how nations are going to be judged by basically what the nation did. Did they o oppress people or did they help people? I'm scared for like Russia, <laughs> like... They're not a nation in the history of the world that's going to be like, oh, you were really helpful to the rest of the world. They're always taking from the rest of the world or conquering. That said, how do we get ready for both a national situation and for an individual judgment? If there's two judgments, how do we get ready for both of them? Okay, we don't do verse 41. This, these are the goats. Then he's, he will also say to those on the left hand, the goats, and that does not mean greatest of all time, Grant. In, in this particular passage, is, to be a goat is not a good thing. It's, it's, it's the, the animal that does not give of its own wool to other people, that animal. And goats are really known for eating things. Like, they eat everything. Like, the reason you keep a goat is because they just eat crap all the time. And it's the stuff you don't want to deal with. They just eat it. That's why you keep goats. So then you'll say to those on the left, the goats, the not-so-productive animals, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, like a, a refugee, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. It's horrible. Now, people misuse these verses. They say that means we need to take everybody in. But not everybody's a refugee, <laughs> right? Not everyone has need when they come and, and do that. But it, it, it is also a place where there is a moral violation to be indifferent towards the suffering of other people. It's a moral violation to God. It's a horrible thing to do. That when their people are needing and we do nothing, we're held accountable for that. As a nation, we're held accountable for that. Which means that as part of a nation where we have a voice, we should be asking that of our politicians and leaders. Take care of people, feed people, help people. What about those strangers we haven't met yet that are still in the womb? Are we okay with them getting killed? Or are we advocating that they don't get killed? That's uh, going to anger people. In podcast people, that may anger some people. But you know what? We're a nation right now that's approving the killing of babies. 
That's a violation, a moral violation that our nation is held accountable to. And we need to understand how this works. We have countries where they're, they're being attacked and they, we, thousands of refugees that need a place to be. Historically speaking, I'm really proud our country has taken in refugees from multiple wars throughout our history to the ability to which we can help people, we generally have. Food helps, or when we deliver food trucks or get, do things where we do relief projects around the world, that's important work. And as a nation, we are held accountable for that. As God gathers the nations and parts them, the sheep from the goats, I want our nation to be on the side of the, the sheep, if possible. God wants no nation or person in his presence that's capable of leaving people hurting. Right? Gusick says the cost is just too high to not help people. Right? It costs us something when we don't do it. We think we're just saving our money or not helping, but... It's tough. When we're generous and collectively care for others, and I do think the collectively part is the judgment of the nations here, we're only giving to people what God's already blessed us with. It's his talents that he's given to his workers. So when we harvest or keep that or dig it into a hole, I do think that's something we're accountable for. We're supposed to take that and use it and use those goods and services to bear spiritual fruit. So there's nothing here the nations have done that is sinful. What they're being held accountable in verse 41 and 43 is what they haven't done. Again, if the Holy Spirit's in you, that's a terrifying thought. Well, what have I missed? And again, when God says good and faithful servant, some of us are going to be like, oh, thank you. I didn't think I was there. I did my best, but I didn't think I was there. Verse 44, then they who answer him saying, Lord, when we... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When did we not help you? And then he will answer saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into eternal life. This is a deeply serious thing in God's eyes, how we treat people that need things. And this doesn't mean that we give money to every TV show that says they that showed us a, a little child on their advertisement, right? This does mean that when we encounter people in our life that are struggling or, or, or hurting, we need to help them. And we need to do what we can to help people. And that's tough. The word everlasting there in the Greek is a heonios, an eon or an age long. It's, it doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end. It's a perpetual, everlasting punishment. Everybody gets what they want. It's perfect justice. Notice that the judgment for the sheep is identically to the same as the judgment to the goats in this respect. The, the Lord says the same thing to both of them. Assuredly, I say to you, in so much as you did or didn't do to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. So it's consistent. Justice is consistent across the board. If humans have an eternal soul and then we get cursed with a thing called death, that means we're not eternal anymore. So if death is defeated and humans can then live eternally like we were designed to do it, then we have to ask, like, how do we accept that gift to have that death curse removed? And that's Jesus. Do you want to serve a king? Great. You're going to live with him and his servants forevermore. You have a perpetual and eternal soul that will never end. If you want to serve yourself, great. You're going to live with yourself forevermore alone in outer darkness and an everlasting torment because you are an eternal being. So just because you're going to have death separate you from your physical body doesn't mean your being doesn't go on forever. God made you eternal. 
So you're going to get what you want. You're going to get what you, in perfect justice, you'll get where your heart is. This is why when I, those people are like, I'm really worried that I'm not doing enough. Well, if you're worried about it, then you don't need to worry about it. If your heart is one where you want to be doing good things and helping people and serving things, the Holy Spirit's already done that work on your heart. Praise the Lord. He's given you a heart of service. Because it's not natural for humans to want to help others. Like, talk to a two-year-old and see how, how giving their hearts are. We're not born that way. But we learn that, and God puts a Holy Spirit in us that we want to serve other people and help other people. Verse 46, last verse of the chapter. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the message of Jesus to his disciples. You're going to have eternal life. And the question was, when are we going to know when you're coming? How do we know if you're coming? Look, here's all the signs of me coming, but don't worry about it. You're not going to be there for that. You need to be ready. Be in the Word. Be in the Holy Spirit. Be working. And you know what? At the end of the day, if you're righteous, you're going to have eternal life. You don't need to worry about when I'm coming back or how I'm coming back. You need to be watchful and you need to be ready. But when I come, you're going to be righteous. You're going to have eternal life. And you got one guy sitting in the crowd named Judas who's like, mm, enough. I'm all done with this stuff. Who's this human being to promise me an eternal salvation? It's not his to give. And what Judas didn't get was, yes, it was his to give. And he proved it in, in his resurrection. But you can at least start to understand where these messages are so to the soul that for Judas, this sent him packing, right? His heart left Jesus when he heard this. Because sometimes the human heart doesn't want to serve a good and almighty God. And this stuff we're talking about is serious. The cost is high. The results are significant and eternal. And, and a lot of what Jesus talks about, especially the Beatitudes, like be a nice person and do good things. Okay, we love the salvation that Jesus offers. Are we ready to serve him too? And that's the question Jesus has. Because if that love and appreciation for the gift turns into nothing, then you really never receive the gift in the first place. And this gets into all kinds of questions about salvation. We can talk about that over lunch. I can't wait for the conversation. But essentially, Jesus walks away with that message of the righteous will live an everlasting life. That's Christianity. That's the message of God. If you receive the gift, you have eternal life. And that, that package is there. What I don't want to do is when we read this stuff from Jesus, one of the temptations is to be works-based. I just got to do more stuff. No, you don't. You got to get the heart right, and you got to get a heart that wants to do things. And that comes through the hearing of the Word of God, which leads to faith. It comes with the, the Holy Spirit that you encounter when you're with God's people and just enjoying that Holy Spirit. Worship, prayer, song, fellowship, right? Those things result in the right outcomes. And I think that's part of it. I think Jesus is assuring his disciples as much as he's convicting people that aren't there. Again, tough message today. Amen? Let's pray. Dear, dear Lord, coach us and train us. Give us a heart, Lord, that doesn't just seek after works, but we seek after you. We want to get done and have you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we just want to be your servant. So open our eyes. May the Holy Spirit always be in our lamps so that you can, the Holy Spirit can speak to us and we can see need. Help us not get to heaven and go, when did, when did that happen? And, and when did I serve people? And when did I help people? Lord, help your Holy Spirit to be working with us that we, we just see it and we do it. And, and, and it's a joy to our heart when we do. Lord, help us to do things with a, with a sense that you're returning tomorrow. Lord, we might not have time to call that person, to connect with that person ever again. 
Uh, Lord, your return could happen instantly. We might not even get to tonight, Lord. And, 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 and that's not an attitude that, that we should take lightly, Lord. It's one that we train ourselves to, Lord, that we live in such a way where we expect your coming on all spiritual and moral issues. May it drive us and motivate, made us to say things, to encourage people, to bless people, to admonish people with a love in our heart that you've given us. Lord, in the same sense, help us to be wise and help us to be, if you tarry a long time, let us be like the good servant that, that got to work and we invest those talents and those resources that we take those goods and things you've blessed us with, Lord, and we, we long-term invest and think about those things. May we just be a blessing to the people around us in how we live and how we do things. May we be wise, not foolish. May we be blessed and not cursed. And Lord, may we be saved and not left out. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.